The title for this morning's talk is The Gift of Diversity. In the talks of the last few days, I've emphasized the importance of being present with what is. Rather than buying into the fantasies we're prone to fall into, to create, to replace reality. Today, this morning, I invite you to appreciate that when we come to be present with the real, or using the metaphor of yesterday's talk, when we come out of our tunnels, we become available to vibrate and dance with the rich diversity of what is, both inside ourselves and outside ourselves. As we become aware of this richness, we realize that its diverse elements have to somehow learn to work together so that they do not give rise to a chaotic hodgepodge, but instead dance in harmony with each other. So in this talk, I will look into this dance more closely. First, I want to look at the diversity itself. And I'll start looking at the diversity within, within each one of us. And next, I look at the diversity among humans and among all kinds of beings. And then, having looked at the whole spectrum of diversity, I'll examine what keeps this assemblage harmonious. So, our first stop is uh, the diversity within ourselves, starting with the body and then looking at the mind. The diversity without, within our bodies is, is, of course, pretty obvious, isn't it? We, are, we have a, a huge collection of different organs, hearts, lungs, our stomach, intestine, liver, kidney, arms, hands, legs, feet, tongue, skin, and, and all the rest. And within each organ, the different types of tissues, there's a lot of diversity within the, the liver, say, different types of tissues and cells. Each 
organ and each type of cell and tissue is essential because they perform different functions and without this collection of different functions we wouldn't function. And then I haven't mentioned but even a, a richer network within the brain and the nervous system. The, the brain and the nervous system also being not just another organ of the body but uh, the headquarters of our mind. In that system different functions are also localized but take the brain for instance localization in it is not it's, it's quite flexible just, just one example you may have heard of it or not but right, right and left hemispheres of the brain deal with similar things but in very different ways. And yet this difference is not hardwired because if, say, we lose a function of one side because of a tumor or because of an injury, <coughs> then eventually, it takes a while, but eventually the other hemisphere takes on both modalities. And, and this flexibility applied so to much of a function of our nervous system. Most of its connections remain open to rewiring. Some rewire easily as we learn something new. Then new information gets imprinted into the circuit, uh, circuitry of the brain and can get modified by further learning. That's what schooling is all about. Some connections tend to be stubborn and tenacious in the wiring. Just, just a simple example. Most of my life, all of my life, really, every car I've owned has manual transmission. And as you may know, I know this is pretty old-fashioned, but still happens. You get manually transmitted cars. Uh, in such cars, in order to change gears, you first have to press a clutch and then change the gears. Whenever I have to rent a, an automatic car or, or, or borrow one, I'm ready to change gears and left foot insists and pressing the clutch that's not there, you know. Um, you know, but 
there's flexibility too. Finally, I can learn that too. All right, so, mu so much for the diversity of organs and circuitry within ourselves. Let us now concern the differences that prevail among us humans, like our differences in sex, age, race, physical capability, temper, whatever, there are many of them. To me, it's very clear, I hope it's for you too, that those diversities enrich our collective. And that they enrich each one of you, of, of us, I meant to say, as we learn from each other. Take the in inquiry periods of our group. You know, I mean, all the things that come up they enrich our understanding of things. I certainly learn a lot from the things that members of the group bring up during the inquiry. <coughs> well, consider any collaborative project that you get involved in and, and how it gets enriched by the diversity of the participant whenever the participants are open to give and receive. It's also true that for this enrichment to spread, we have to learn to balance independence with interdependence so that, that they can coexist side by side. Independence, meaning that no one is in a subordinate condition in relationship to others. And interdependence, meaning that we all appreciate and cultivate uh, the possibility of collaboration. What a gift. So moving on to look at the relationship not just among humans, but among and between all kinds of different beings. So how do we relate to other animals, plants, and even bacteria? Let's start at looking at the bacteria that inhabit our body. As you know, our intestines can function largely, if not exclusively, because we have bacteria living there. Bacteria that share our meals with us at the table of our guts. Are they us, or are they them? I don't know. And 
how do we get along with them? Or rather, how could we get along without them? Without the rich bacterial flora populating our intestines, we simply could not survive. Nor could they survive without us. We are, as the saying goes, made for each other. As recent work has shown, that's not all there is to our connection with the bacterial flora. It seems that this flora teams up with us not only for processing our food in the intestine, but also for processing what goes on in our mind. I mean, this sounds weird, no? But recent experiments with mice have shown that the eating habits of mice depend upon the type of bacteria that they harbor in their intestines, in their guts. And that even the social habits of mice can be affected by the bacterial flora. Listen to what Michael Pollan said in a recent article in the New York Times magazine. Just a brief quote. He says, When gut microbes from easygoing, adventurous mice are transplanted into the guts of anxious and timid mice, they, the mice, become more adventurous. The expression, thinking with your gut, may contain a larger kernel of truth than we thought. I say to myself, holy mackerel, (laughs) could they be that some of those guys down there are dictating my talk right now? (laughs) (laughs) At least parts of it. At least parts of it. (laughs) Give me a little bit of credit. (laughs) All right. And then, so much for, for our flora inside, the other organism that we have inside. I haven't exhausted the list, but it's just all I'm going to cover here. Besides that, our most interactions with other types of beings, besides human beings, occurs outside of our body. The most conspicuous one is our interaction with our an interaction that at times can outshine our relationship with our fellow human beings. You know, like 
Raquel. It's a little advertisement for Raquel too, but <laughs> she's having a show in New York and she's being written up in a prestigious art publication and so on. And uh, the person, the woman who came to interview her has a, a lovely but pretty fastidious little puppy. I've never seen such intimacy, so glaring intimacy between two beings, as between her and her puppy. Of course, we are also able to establish very close connections with animals that are not our pets. A member of our group uh, came one day during our Wednesday meeting, told us about his uh, relationship with some piglets that live next near him. He got into the habit of walking from his home every morning and walk by those piglets and and the, the connection got established there. And then he started feeding them. Oh, the <coughs> piglets went, went crazy whenever they saw him. But, but it didn't depend on the feeding. It was the connection that the piglets felt. That's the way he translates it. Because sometimes he walked and wasn't feeding him. And still there was that love that was apparent and certainly the love that he felt for the piglets. And that's at the personal level and, and scientifically of course this has been clearly established by ecologists that the most stable, robust and successful Ecosystems are the ones comprising the great, greatest diversity of beings, of plants, animals, and microbes. Because those systems offer the greatest opportunities for interaction and cooperation. All right, so, so much for the diversity itself. But this diversity needs to be balanced. Otherwise it can become chaotic, disarticulated, when the participant have not had the opportunity to practice cooperation with each other. You know, take those piglets for instance. They recognized our fellow meditator as they recognized their owners who surely feed them. Because poor guys, they didn't know that their owners are probably, I'm sure, going to sacrifice them as well. But anyway... That's another part of the story.
So, cooperation, love in fact, requires apprenticeship, requires practice. And the apprenticeship for cooperation may take a long time, often centuries, if not millennia, to develop. During that time, as the theory of evolution suggests, the organism that can make it are not only the ones that can cope with difficulties, but also the ones that can thrive in cooperation with each other. Let me bring up an example concerning what happens in Australia with the rabbits. Before 1859, there were no rabbits, not a single rabbit in the whole continent of Australia. <coughs> On that year, a landowner called Thomas Austin imported 24 rabbits from England and released them into the wild. He wanted to hunt, you know, and that was the idea. Sports, getting rabbits for sports hunting. But because the ecosystems of Australia had never before experienced on how to accommodate rabbits, chances were that this landowner should have known, but he didn't that the animals would either succumb or reproduce like crazy. Did they did the latter. By the year 1920, or the decade of the 20s rather, the progeny of those 24 rabbits had ballooned to 10 billion, invading most of the continent and ravaging its agriculture. Today, as the result of extensive effort, efforts to control the numbers, the rabbit population of Australia has been reduced to about 200 million produced to about 200 million. Invading, still invading most of the continent and ravaging its agriculture. I was commenting on this with our daughter, our oldest daughter, and she reminded me that her father-in-law, an Italian, had early in the century or mid-century whatever been hired to be a participant in this 
rabbit extermination campaign. And her daughter remem remembers pictures she was shown of her father-in-law in Australia with a gun and a, a rabbit hanging from her hook and a, a whole string of rabbits hanging from her a rope I mean 20 I mean de de dozens of rabbits that he proudly eliminated for which he was being paid but still as I said didn't solve the problem the lesson is clear for diversity to be a gift it has to be integrated into the whole otherwise it becomes invasive it becomes a real mess invasiveness unbalanced invasiveness has also been happening as we know only too well within human societies in its more extreme form it's a military invasion or a military takeover you know look at the news and it's full of that I mean, we blandish excuses but it's really disastrous and yet we have to remind ourselves this is not an inevitable corollary of the human condition but rather a byproduct of an aberrant contemporary culture which has roots in the past sure of course have been many invasions and military takeovers in the past but it's not the basic human conditions as most traditional societies know very well traditional societies have learned to cultivate distinctiveness and cooperation that is to say to find balance in the midst of diversity the Buddha was very well aware of the need for such a balance he did not want the awakened mind to be swamped and invaded by the prevailing ignorance let alone by military force of course he often uses simile of the lotus flower to illustrate this point. Listen to him. This is from one of the scriptures. Uh, by the way, as you know, the lotus flower grows in a pond. Um, is rooted in the ground of the pond, but comes up to the surface and its leaves and flowers have this 
drops of water that do not blend with it, but stay, stick out on top of the leaves. So, here's what the Buddha says. As a flower of a lotus, arisen in water, blossoms, pure-scented and pleasing the mind, yet is not drenched by the water. In the same way, born in the world, the Buddha abides in the world, and like the lotus by water, he does not get drenched by the world. You know, this image of the lotus flower, of a flower not drenched by water, became very vivid to me a couple of months ago because I had exactly a dream on those terms. I dreamt that I saw a plant coming out of the water and with this spherical bubbles of water sitting on its leaf bulging drops of water just like in the Buddha's quote of course it's not that the lotus is aversive to water in fact its roots pick up water and couldn't live without it but it does it whenever it's a problem not where it's not the opposite of a lotus flower would be sponge which picks up everything and turns it into something homogeneous, monotonous. Socially, sponge-like attitude leads us to total monotony, to total banality as we bite fully into the conventional conventionality of the mainstream or in terms of yesterday talks into the collective tunnels to meditate is to be like the lotus to let in what's appropriate for the occasion and keeps keep out what's not. In the process, we create space in which we come in touch with the vibrancy of our inner being and we become immersed into it. But we don't disappear, we don't dissolve in the world. We continue to have our own called properties <coughs> and of course make very rich the diversity of all we are. There's no better proof than this particular retreat and the inquiry periods and the things that come up. And, and, and even without talking, you know, just just through looking at each other, through 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 Communicating in some 
ethereal ways, I would say, not, not making it fancy, but in, in some strange ways <laughs> with each other. And, and having connected with our, our own vibrancy and the vibrancy around us, we realize, we, it becomes clear, at least to me, I, it's not a logical thing, but it becomes clear to me that we are not separate from the vibrancy of all there is. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha expressed this realization with the utmost simplicity. He simply touched the earth with his fingertips. Didn't have to say anything. Just the gesture, the whole meaning of that. And then Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet who died a decade or so ago, more than that perhaps, Nobel Prize winner, one of my favorite poets, but puts poignantly his own connection to the earth in a poem entitled in Spanish Aquí vivimos This is where we live Let me share parts of that with you He says, in English, of course, I'm grateful to the earth for having waited for me. When sky and sea came together like two lips touching. For, for that's no small thing, no? To have lived through one solitude to arrive at another. To see oneself, many things, and recover wholeness. I love all the things there are, and all the fires, sorry, and of, of all the fires, love is the only inexistible, inexhaustible one. That's why I go from life to life, from guitar to guitar, and I have no fear of light or of shade. And almost being earth myself, I spoon away at infinity. So no one can fail to find my doorless, numberless, 
house, there between the dark stones, facing the flash of the violent salt. He lived in house by the beach. There we live, my woman and I. There we take root. Help, help, come, help us. Help us be more earth each day. Thank you, Pablo. Let's just sit in silence for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.